You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. I saw at once that he was a man of great and prompt decision. His muscular, well-proportioned figure, over six feet in height, was indicative of extraordinary physical strength. But it struck me that his most wonderful feature was his piercing blue eye, which flashed and changed so rapidly with every emotion that it was difficult to distinguish its true color. He was a man to catch the look and hold the attention of the most casual observer. And as we gazed on each other, I felt that he was a born leader, and one that I would be willing to follow. That's how Texas frontiersman and Confederate cavalryman Adam Johnson described his new commander uh, upon joining Nathan Bedford Forrest's cavalry. And here's Major David Kelly on fighting under the strong-willed Forrest. Quote, Everything necessary to supply their wants, to make them comfortable, he was quick to do, save to change his plans, to which everything had to bend. New men naturally grumbled, but when the work was done, all were reconciled by the pride felt in the achievement. End quote. And here is Kelly again on observing the battle lust that Forrest displayed when in combat. Quote, when he rode up to me in the thick of the action, I could scarcely believe him to be the man I had known for several months. His face flushed till it bore a striking resemblance to a painted Indian warrior's, and his eyes, usually mild in their expression, were blazing with the intense glare of a panther's springing upon its prey. In fact, he looked as little like the forest of our mess table as the storm of December resembles the quiet of June. So fierce did his passion become that he was almost equally dangerous to friend or foe, and as it seemed to some of us, he was too wildly excitable to be capable of judicious command. Later, we became aware that excitement neither paralyzed nor misled his magnificent military genius. Both the excitability and passion that Kelly noted as defining features of Forrest's character, as well as his capacity to be uh, a danger to both friend and foe alike, are exemplified by a, a particular incident that occurred in June of 1863. We finished the last episode, part two, with what I thought was a somewhat entertaining Civil War story, Colonel Abel Strait's Mule Raid. Now, in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't anything you might call a major campaign. It didn't have a big impact on the war or the overall strategies of either side. But there was one item that we mentioned, uh, something that, that seemed barely noteworthy at the time, that had major long-term ramifications for Nathan Medford Forrest. During one of, one of many fights between Forrest's cavalry and Strait's raiders uh, over the course of the, the two-week raid, Strait's Yankees captured two Confederate artillery pieces. Strait had planned a, a clever ambush that caught the rebels off guard, and the surprised Confederates were, were forced to leave the guns behind during the quick withdrawal 
uh, since the horses that were pulling them had been killed in the ambush. Now, that wasn't exactly an unusual event in the Civil War. Cannons changed hands all the time, and and unfortunately, uh, equine casualties were horrendous on both sides. But this particular loss is noteworthy because under the circumstances, out in the field where replacement guns were, were hard or even impossible to come by, Forrest viewed the loss as unacceptable. And he viewed that unacceptable loss as the responsibility, or maybe more accurately, the fault, of the Confederate officer in whose charge the guns had been placed. And that officer was Lieutenant Andrew Gould. Now, Gould was a 23-year-old artillery officer from Tennessee. He had volunteered to fight for the rebels shortly after graduating from college in 1861, and thus far in his military career, he had performed well enough, though uh, more or less unremarkably. And he was fairly well-liked by his superiors, one of whom reported, quote, I never knew or heard aught to his prejudice. He was a courteous and refined gentleman of temperate and moral habits, end quote. But Forrest wasn't impressed with Gould's performance at Day's Gap, and once the cavalry reunited with the rest of the army, Forrest requested that Gould be transferred out from under Forrest's command. Now, he didn't make a big production about it. He didn't try to court-martial Gould or request a demotion or, or even an official reprimand, just a transfer. Gould, though, viewed the request as a personal insult. Forrest had insulted his honor, and that was a big deal among Southerners of the time. And he marched into Forrest's office to confront the general. Forrest's initial reaction was was kind of to blow it off and, and play it down, um, as if it was no big deal. You know, you had screwed up and mistakes aren't tolerated in my brigade, but it's nothing personal. But that wasn't good enough for Gould. He demanded Forrest rescind the transfer request. Uh, Gould, like we said, he believed his honor had been insulted, and he intended to have that insult redressed. For his part, Forrest refused. He wasn't exactly the kind of guy who would change his mind if you barge into his office yelling at him. The confrontation started to get hot, and Gould went for his gun, and a surprised Forrest quickly grabbed a small knife that he had handy. Uh, Gould got a shot off, and he hit Forrest in the side. Forrest managed to grab Gould by the wrist, and as the two wrestled for the pistol, uh, Forrest stabbed Gould in his side. Now with a significant stab wound, Gould wrestled free of Forrest's grip and fled the area. By that time, a few other Confederates had arrived on the scene in response to the commotion. They grabbed a hold of Forrest and prevented him from chasing after the fleeing Gould. Uh, Not so much to stop the fight, but because Forrest had been shot, and they demanded that he report directly to the medic. The the general was too valuable to lose. Forrest uh, ultimately relented, and he agreed to accept treatment, but only a little bit. The doctor was initially concerned that the bullet had hit Forrest's uh, intestines, which usually meant uh, a painful death in the 1860s, but that ended up not being the case. Even so, upon hearing that the wound uh, might do him in, Forrest shouted, No damned man shall kill me and live. And he grabbed a revolver, um, once again following in pursuit of Gould. Along the way, he was uh, heard by observers to say, I am fatally wounded, 
and I will kill the man who has wounded me, end quote. One of those observers remarked to Forrest that he had, had just seen Gould, and the young lieutenant was himself critically wounded, and he was now receiving rushed treatment from another medic. So Forrest, revolver in hand, hurried into the shop where the medic was attempting to save Gould. Uh, upon seeing Forrest, Gould got up, and he tried to run away. Forrest shot, and he missed. But it didn't matter. Gould was, was no longer able to run. He collapsed, and it became obvious that it, it was Gould, not Forrest, uh, who had got the worst of the exchange. Now, upon that realization, Forrest's tone changed noticeably and completely. He demanded the doctor who had initially treated his own wound now help Gould. Uh, when the doctor tried again to help Forrest, the general refused, saying, It's nothing but a damned little pistol ball. Let it alone and go get Lieutenant Gould. Make him as comfortable as you can. Spare nothing to save him. End quote. Now, this is the guy who, not five minutes ago, was swearing that he was going to kill Gould. Uh, when he thought Gould's bullet w- was going to kill him, Forrest was, was hell-bent on killing Gould before he breathed his last breath. But now that Forrest was uh, reasonably confident that he was going to, to survive, he genuinely wanted Gould to survive as well. Uh, a few days later, uh, Andrew Gould, still alive but in, in pretty rough shape, asked for uh, another meeting with Forrest, this one for a decidedly different purpose. By that point, Gould was, was pretty sure that he was going to die, and he expressed to Forrest that for the good of the war effort and, and the country, the country being the uh, Confederacy, if one of the two had to die, Gould was glad that it was himself and not General Forrest. Forrest reciprocated the regret over the uh, situation as a whole and, and over having, having wounded Gould. And when Lieutenant Gould died shortly after, from the ruptured lung, which had been caused by Forrest's knife, Forrest was by his side. At least that's what some witnesses said about Gould's death. Others disputed that Forrest had even been present, or that Gould had said much of anything. It's hard to tell with these things sometimes. Hello and welcome to Portraits of Blue and Gray. This is part three of our series on Confederate cavalryman Nathan Bedford Forrest. Uh, big thanks to everyone uh, for your patience waiting for this uh, episode, and also to all of the listeners who uh, sent emails with many encouraging words. The next episode, part four, will wrap up the series on Forrest, and after that we plan on moving to something uh, a little different that I, I think is going to be a lot of fun. If you have any questions or comments about the show, you can reach us at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com. It's always fun to get listener emails. I've had several listeners ask about supporting the podcast through Patreon. Um, so I want to say that's not something that I have any plans of, of doing right now, although I do absolutely appreciate the sentiment. If anybody wants to support Portraits of Blue and Gray, just uh, keep listening, and if you happen to know anybody who might be uh, interested in learning about the Civil War, um, maybe turn them on to the show. As always, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show.
About the same time in June 1863 that Forrest is having his fatal confrontation with Lieutenant Andrew Gould, Union General William Rosecrans was attacking into Tennessee, methodically closing in on Shelbyville. Rather than confront Rosecrans, Braxton Bragg, who you will recall was in overall command for the Confederates in the area at that time, uh, Bragg opted to withdraw back to Chattanooga, and Rosecrans's Yankees were in hot pursuit. The Confederates were racing to get across the Duck River to put some space between themselves and the approaching Yankees. Forrest and fellow cavalryman Joseph Wheeler were struggling to uh, shield the hurried retreat, fighting the entire time. Wheeler had reached a critical bridge, and he was preparing to burn it to prevent its use by the Yankees. But he was holding off on the, the burning to allow Forrest's men to cross too. But just before Forrest arrived, Union cavalry showed up, and uh, they forced Wheeler to pull back. By that point, having lost the bridge itself uh, and the chance to destroy it, Forrest, no longer able to cross the bridge that had been held by Wheeler, uh, he had to call an audible and cross the river at Shelbyville instead. After crossing, Forrest's cavalry went back to work in what was a frantic attempt to uh, shield Bragg's withdrawal. Uh, Move and then fight, move and then fight, that sort of thing. Uh, Their position wasn't all that dissimilar from um, Colonel Abel Strait's mule raiders that we discussed at the end of the last episode. Now, something that we uh, tend to lose sight of sometimes is that while this is all going on, the frantic, chaotic movement and sporadic but furious fighting, there are civilians all over the place. Now, especially with the cavalry, uh, the fighting usually wasn't limited to some defined battlefield agreed by the opposing commanders in advance. And the withdrawing rebels and advancing Yankees didn't limit their their paths to public roads and spaces. Most of the time, they were marching across privately owned land, uh, through towns or farms, fields, and in some cases, directly through civilians' front yards. Uh, They were trespassing, though it's not like uh, the civilians or, or local law enforcement were in any kind of position to do anything about it. In one such case, Covering a hasty withdrawal through Tennessee, Forrest encountered an old woman who was sitting on her front porch. You can imagine her maybe in a a rocking chair, working on some knitting or something with a a shotgun leaning next to her. Uh, But she was observing the Confederates' retreat with very obvious distaste. When General Nathan Bedford Forrest got within earshot, she let him have it, shouting, quote, You great big cowardly rascal! Why don't you turn and fight like a man instead of running like a cur? Now, that caught Forrest's attention, and as he turned toward the old lady, considering whether to respond, she yelled, quote, I wish old Forrest was here. He'd make you fight. Now, Forrest generally didn't hesitate to fight, but as uh, Braxton Bragg had decided, sometimes keeping the army intact to fight another day is the better policy. So Rosecrans's Yankees took Chattanooga, and Bragg ended up uh, camped in Lafayette, Georgia, about 20 miles to the south. Rosecrans, though, was under the impression that Bragg had pulled back uh, much further and uh, was still in a hasty retreat. The Confederates also planted deserters to help 
convince Rosecrans that that impression was correct. In September, Rosecrans was once again advancing, moving south from Chattanooga to confront the rebel army under Bragg. And he was under heavy pressure from, from Washington to, uh, to pursue Bragg aggressively, to speed things up, and specifically to accelerate his passage through uh, the mountains that were blocking his way. Rosecrans divided his army into three columns, with each to move uh, over and through mountain gaps separately. The Confederates saw this as an opportunity to fight the Yankees in detail. One of the Union columns was was temporarily isolated and exposed, and Bragg ordered an attack, but the uh, rebels, specifically D.H. Hill, failed to act quickly enough, which allowed the Yankees to reconsolidate and prepare to meet the rebels on the field. Uh, A couple days later, Forrest's cavalry spotted a Union corps under Thomas Crittenden, moving unprotected in the front of the Confederate lines. And this time, Bragg ordered Leonidas Polk to uh, lead the attack. And once again, the uh, attack didn't happen, much to Bragg's consternation. Forrest, though, managed to uh, once again get wounded in his cavalry's limited engagements with the Union division. So by September 17th, the two armies stood facing one another from opposite sides of Chickamauga Creek, about 15 miles out of uh, Chattanooga. Um, each side preparing for a full engagement. Bragg's initial plan involved crossing the creek and getting in between Rosecrans and Chattanooga. Uh, During the night, though, Rosecrans repositioned his men to improve his defensive posture. And um, as a part of that effort, he extended the, the Yankee flank beyond Bragg's own flank, making Bragg's former plan completely unworkable. On the 19th, Forrest was dispatched to uh, recon Bragg's right flank, the Union left, um, which happened to be the northern part of the lines. In the process of doing so, he discovered that as a result of um, Rosecrans's repositioning, the Union infantry regiments were now in a position where, where they could hit the rebels on their flank, and, and in fact were not, were not long from doing so. Left unchecked, that situation could have very easily spelled disaster for uh, Bragg's Confederate army. So Forrest ordered his cavalry to dismount and defend uh, against the Yankee advance. He snatched up rebel reinforcements to help defend against the the Yankee flanking movement uh, until Bragg started sending uh, much larger reinforcements from the center to the rebel right, which by that point had become the focus uh, uh, of what was developing into a full battle. Rebel General D.H. Hill had this to say about Forrest's protection of the Confederate flank um, from the surprise Yankee uh, attack um, on the first day at Chickamauga. Quote, I would ask no better fortune if again placed on a flank than to have such a vigilant, gallant, and accomplished officer guarding its approaches. End quote. Now, the fighting on the Union left went back and forth throughout the day, with the sides trading momentum as fresh troops intermittently arrived. By the end of the day, the Confederate flank and the Union flank, both of which had been close to failing at at one point or another, uh, they both ultimately held. And a late-night rebel advance led by Patrick Claiborne secured forward ground for the rebels, improving the Confederate position somewhat. But um, Bragg's uncoordinated uh, erratic efforts hadn't managed to secure anything uh, that resembled a victory. 
And in the process, the rebels had taken heavy losses. Late that night, significant Confederate reinforcements started arriving, most notably in the form of General James Longstreet and two divisions fresh off a train from the Army of Northern Virginia. Uh, nowadays, you can get from, from Northern Virginia to Chattanooga in about you know, eight, or, eight or nine hours down I-81, but moving Longstreet's Corps by rail had taken a couple days. But as it turned out, they arrived just in time. The addition of Longstreet changed the complexion of Chickamauga entirely. Under Bragg's direction, he took command of the rebel left, uh, with Leonidas Polk in command on the right. And with the additional men, the rebels now significantly outnumbered the Yankees. Bragg was planning a morning offensive on the Union left for the next day, which was going to be September 20th. But somehow the plans didn't make it down the chain of command, and none of the commanders charged with leading this uh, planned assault had any idea of what was supposed to be happening. Uh, But eventually, after a significant delay, the rebel troops did advance, uh, with the attack starting on the Confederate right, where Forrest was still positioned. Now, the attack was heavy. But it wasn't well-conceived or well-executed, and it didn't uh, achieve anything like the desired result uh, of pushing the Union Army south. Then, after having seen some success in the morning, Rosecrans made a massive mistake. In an effort to fill a gap in the center of the Union line, Rosecrans moved a, a significant portion of his men from the center over to the right. Now, the problem, though, was that there wasn't actually any gap to fill, or at least there hadn't been. Uh, Rosecrans was working based on on bad intelligence. But after the shift, there was now a very real gap. By moving men to fix a perceived gap, Rosecrans had created a real gap, and a big one. Had that happened earlier in this campaign, it it might not have, have ended up being a problem. Uh, If they noticed, Bragg or Polk or whoever happened to be in command on the scene probably would have dilly-dallied and then launched a a disjointed attack right after Rosecrans realized what he had done and corrected the error. But as it happened, the rebel general who was on the scene was someone who knew how to identify and exploit a weakness in the opposing side's position. General James Longstreet, Robert E. Lee's old war horse, as he called him, fresh from the Army of Northern Virginia, was in command on the rebel left, directly across from the Union position uh, from which Rosecrans had just removed considerable strength. To uh, use a sports metaphor, it would be like Rosecrans had just moved a couple of his offensive linemen uh, from the center of the line uh, over to the end, and now Longstreet is, is in the position of a, uh, a linebacker who finds that he has an unobstructed path to the quarterback. Not too long before Rosecrans' uh, shift, Bragg had ordered what would otherwise have been an ill-advised all-out assault, and it was an order that had been reluctantly received by many of the Confederate officers, including, at least at first, James Longstreet. But with a massive hole in the Union line now directly to his front, Longstreet, uh, he thought a full-blown advance wasn't such a bad idea and his his advancing rebels were organized in deep rather than wide flanks, allowing them to fully exploit the weakened Yankee line, uh, drive straight into the hole, and start widening it. The attack was a marked contrast from the attack Longstreet had 
reluctantly organized on the third day of Gettysburg. Instead of thinner, wider ranks that could apply pressure simultaneously down long sections of the Union front, instead of that, at Chickamauga, the force was concentrated so that it only presented a relatively small front, applying pressure to a relatively small portion of the Union line, but that focused pressure was overwhelming. Historians differ as to just how much credit Longstreet deserves here. It goes anything from he just happened to be at the right spot at the right time and benefited from all the cards coming up his way. Uh, Even when Longstreet appeared to make a mistake, it ended up working to his benefit. Anybody in that position would have come out smelling like roses. Or the other side is uh, Rosecrans had been getting away with huge blunders the entire campaign, and Longstreet unlike the other uh, rebel commanders to that point, knew how to capitalize on an advantage, and he did so brilliantly with a nearly flawlessly executed attack. Now, regardless of, of uh, how you look at it, uh, after the self-inflicted hole in the Union lines had been blown open, the Union left fell apart, and resistance soon ceased, other than in a few stubborn pockets. Men began withdrawing on their own, and even officers who should have known better panicked and began a disorganized flight back to Chattanooga. Rosecrans concluded that the battle had been lost, and he also headed to Chattanooga to begin organizing the city's defense. The Yankee soldiers who were still fighting were commanded by General George Thomas, a Union loyal son of Virginia. Thomas's defense earned him the nickname the Rock of Chickamauga, For hours, the remaining Union soldiers, consisting mostly of four of Thomas's divisions in a strong, elevated position, uh, along with various remnants of the Union army that rallied to the strong point, man by man, company by company, they obstinately held off rebel attacks from their position at Horseshoe Ridge. Now, by keeping the rebels occupied, Thomas's men protected the rest of the Union army that was making its hurried way back to Chattanooga. They took heavy losses for the effort facing nearly constant pressure from multiple angles, but they resisted the urge to flee or surrender until the formal order to withdraw to Chattanooga came from Thomas. And Thomas conducted the withdrawal as well as could be expected under the circumstances, moving the army piece by piece until dusk. A few regiments snuck out under cover of darkness, and then eventually only three regiments were forced to surrender to Bragg. Considering how disastrous the day could have gone, uh, it was an immensely valuable effort by Thomas. Rosecrans's uh, Army of the Cumberland had been, had been thoroughly defeated and, and noticeably damaged, but it had survived and it would live to fight again under another commander. Now, Rosecrans uh, lost his nerve after Chickamauga, and he also lost the confidence of President Lincoln who would uh, dispatch Ulysses Grant to salvage the situation that had developed in Chattanooga. After the battle, Bragg's two highest-ranking subordinates, Longstreet and Polk, both vigorously pushed for an immediate pursuit of the retreating Yankees. Bragg, though, demurred, contending that his army had, had taken too much damage. They had to regroup first. And to be fair, the rebels had taken just short of 20,000 casualties. That's a lot. Uh, But at the same time, as Longstreet argued, the Army of the Cumberland was on the ropes. It had been hurt, and it was staggering back to its corner. Uh, There was a very real opportunity for a knockout. But Bragg disagreed, and he was the decider 
to quote a president who was a little less eloquent than Lincoln. So instead of pressing the advantage, he only sent Forrest with what amounted to a a token cavalry detachment to follow on Rosecrans's and Thomas's trails. Forrest did as instructed, tracking the Union Army all the way back to Chat all the way back to Chattanooga. And what he found, or what he assessed, was that Rosecrans's army was in complete chaos. The men and the officers were all demoralized. Up and down the ranks, confidence in the army's leadership had evaporated. Rosecrans himself was effectively broken by the defeat and ultimately needed to be relieved of command. The force didn't know that at the time. The bottom line, according to Forrest, was that the Army of the Cumberland was in shambles and Forrest reported to Bragg, quote, I think we ought to press forward as rapidly as possible. Bragg didn't respond, so Forrest tried again. The Yankees are evidently fortifying. The rebels needed to strike while the iron is hot. Forrest specifically calculated that, quote, every hour is worth 10,000 men, end quote. Now, I'm not sure how he arrived at those figures, but the point was that Forrest was forcefully advocating for a quick attack on the Yankee army. Now, in the face of additional evidence of disorder in the, in the Army of the Cumberland and a personal visit from Forrest pleading for aggressive action, Bragg still stalled. Eventually, the Union Army holed up in Chattanooga and Bragg decided to move in for a low-intensity siege. Now, at this, Forrest was beyond frustrated, wondering aloud and repeatedly why Bragg bothered to fight battles if he wasn't going to try to capitalize on a victory. At the end of September, Bragg dispatched Forrest in the direction of Knoxville to keep an eye on Ambrose Burnside's movements there. But he, meaning Bragg, had already decided to get rid of his best cavalry commander. And on September 28th, Bragg ordered Forrest to transfer command of the men that he had been leading to Joseph Wheeler. Now, Bragg assured Forrest that this was just a temporary situation. Wheeler needed the men for an important mission. Then Forrest would get them back. But privately, Bragg was complaining that Forrest wasn't competent or a serious officer. He was adequate as a guerrilla or a partisan fighter, but not in a real army. According to Bragg, Forrest didn't understand the the big picture strategy. He didn't properly respect the chain of command. Now, on that last count, Bragg was, you know, he's probably right. Um, Forrest didn't cope well with with working uh, under someone that he didn't respect. And Forrest clearly didn't respect Bragg. In general, Forrest also didn't take orders well. And he was predisposed toward uh, taking offense too easily, interpreting an inadvertent comment or good faith difference of opinion as an affront to his personal honor. These were characteristics Forrest had picked up during a uh, a rough childhood growing up on the frontier. The the personal bravery and resourcefulness uh, with which the frontier imbued her sons became virtues in a soldier. The mistrust of authority, bristling independence, and hair-trigger temper uh, didn't always harmonize quite as well with military life. Bragg's next move was to assign Forrest to a subordinate role under Wheeler, which, uh, you know, effectively amounted to a demotion. Once again, Forrest was, uh, he was going to lose his command. This time, though, it, it was just too much. He wouldn't stand by and watch Bragg's incompetence ruin what he had built. 
And Forrest was convinced that Bragg, that, well, Bragg had it in for him, and he was intentionally sabotaging his career. And so he decided that, well, much like Andrew Gould, when he had felt insulted by the actions of a superior officer, Forrest marched into Bragg's office for a confrontation. When the commanding general extended his hand, Forrest refused it, not wanting to spread COVID, and saying he was, quote, not here to pass civilities or compliments, but on other business, end quote. He accused Bragg of engaging in a cowardly and contemptible persecution of Forrest uh, because Forrest had reported facts to Richmond while Bragg reported damned lies, end quote. Then Forrest noted that he had twice raised and equipped brigades at his own personal expense, without thanks to you or the government, and that twice Bragg had robbed me of my command in a spirit of revenge and spite to ruin me and my career, end quote. Now, it's worth pointing out that Braxton Bragg, for all his faults, he wasn't some you know, lowly brigadier. He was in overall command of one of the largest Confederate armies, one of the highest ranking uh, officers in all the South. And he was also tight with President Jefferson Davis. So Forrest was, well, we'll just say he wasn't punching down here. And uh, there were potentially very real repercussions in confronting Bragg. And uh, Forrest must have been aware of those. So keep that in mind as we again quote Forrest's um, reported indictment of Bragg. Quote, I have stood your meanness as long as I intend to. You have played the part of a damned scoundrel, and you are a scoundrel. And remember, a scoundrel uh, was, was a much more serious accusation in the 19th century. It wasn't so much a scruffy-looking nerf herder as a low-down, dirty bastard, or, or I don't want to take the language any worse than that, but we'll say it might be like... Uh, uh, might be something Jules Winfield might say. And if you're racking your brain right now trying to remember who Jules Winfield is, he's... Samuel Jackson's character from Pulp Fiction. Anyway, back to Forrest. Uh, again, quoting his reported confrontation of Bragg, quote, If you were any part of a man, I would slap your jaws and force you to resent it. You may as well not issue any orders to me, for I will not obey them, and I will hold you personally responsible for any further indignities you endeavor to inflict upon me. You have threatened to arrest me for not obeying your orders promptly. I dare you to do it. And I say to you, if you ever again try to interfere with me or cross my path, it will be at the peril of your life, end quote. Uh, then Forrest abruptly walked out of the room. Um, it was a mic drop, you might say. Well, I wouldn't say that, but you might. And again, in case there was any ambiguity, Forrest's last sentence was pretty clearly a death threat. Forrest was telling Bragg, his commanding officer, that he would literally murder him if Bragg messed with him again. And, and this is a guy who had some experience with that sort of thing. He, he hadn't really committed cold-blooded murder, at, at least not that we know of, but Forrest had plenty of kills under his belt, and in combat and otherwise. So what do you do here if you're Bragg? You know, court-martial him? Demand that Forrest be cashiered and brought up on charges? Maybe chase Forrest out of the room with a, a pistol in hand, screaming, no one talks to me like that? Uh, that's probably what Forrest would have done. Actually, nothing like that happened. Immediately after the confrontation, Forrest commented to a subordinate officer, quote, He'll never say a word about it. Mark my word. He'll take no action in the matter. I'll ask to be relieved and transferred, and he will not oppose it. 
Now, Bragg almost certainly almost certainly could have had Forrest court-martialed uh, for that incident. Um, Forrest wouldn't have denied any of it, and that very easily could have led to a, a demotion, at least, or potentially resulted in Forrest being cashiered. Had that happened, though, there would have been some pretty serious problems with the men who were loyal to Forrest and who recognized that Forrest was, uh, was in fact, the better commander. And Bragg probably also knew that losing Forrest would have, would have been a serious blow to the Confederate war effort and the morale of his army. And so he elected not to make anything of the incident. He let it go, just as Forrest had predicted. Now, I don't know, maybe Bragg deserves some credit for that. I can't make up my mind. Now, Bragg's decision in that regard may have been influenced by the fact that Forrest was not the only high-ranking rebel officer uh, presently working for Bragg who had a problem with him. In the aftermath of Chickamauga, Leonidas Polk, James Longstreet, and William Hardee had jointly voiced complaints to Richmond about Bragg. That's three of the highest-ranking Confederate generals in the West at the time. And, And it was a serious enough matter that Jefferson Davis visited the Army personally to mediate. Against the wishes of the other generals, Davis opted to leave Bragg in command. That was due in part to Davis's and Bragg's friendship and because the likely alternate commander, Joseph Johnston, was someone with whom Davis did not get along. Now, while playing referee between Bragg and his officer corps, Davis also took the opportunity to meet with Forrest. After the confrontation with Bragg, Forrest had tendered his resignation, or in the alternative, asked for a transfer making it abundantly clear that in either case, he would absolutely refuse to serve under Bragg any longer. And that only made sense. I mean, Forrest had sworn to kill Bragg if he ever saw him again. So it would probably be difficult to maintain a, uh, you know, a healthy working relationship under those conditions. Now, in a normal situation, Jefferson Davis might have accepted the resignation of the quarrelsome general Uh, But obviously, the current situation was far from normal, and so Davis opted instead to promote Forrest. Uh, In December 1863, Forrest became a major general and landed in an independent command based in northern Mississippi, formally reporting to General Stephen Lee, but it was uh, more of a loose partnership than anything, and Lee let Forrest know early on that he uh, could and should use his own independent judgment. It was the kind of flexible setting Uh, where Forrest was at his best as a commander. David Kelly, uh, the Confederate officer we um, quoted at the beginning of the episode, um, who was on Forrest's staff uh, and was also an obvious Forrest admirer, concluded that the general was, quote, unfit to serve under a superior. He was like a caged lion on the field of battle where he was not commanding. Davis gave Forrest 300 experienced men as a foundation to build on and orders to once again recruit, train, and organize his new command. And once again, Forrest didn't get any money from Richmond for recruiting or any weapons for the recruits he was able to gather. Instead, Forrest again paid for the cost of arming and equipping his new command out of pocket, uh, reportedly expending around 20000 bucks in the process. Uh, The recruits came mostly from Kentucky and areas of Tennessee under Union occupation and consisted of quite a few men who had gone AWOL from other regiments, but um, relished the opportunity to ride under the famous Cavalier. 
Word got out to the Union occupiers that Forrest had moved into the occupied areas of western Tennessee with an eye on recruiting new men. Now, for his part, Sherman was, well, initially unconcerned, believing that the best fighting men in Tennessee were already in uniform, uh, whether it happened to be a, a blue one or a gray one. The potential recruits that remained wouldn't be, wouldn't be worth much. As Sherman put it in his characteristically cynical way, quote, every conscript he catches will cost him a good man to watch. Now, Sherman had good reason to think that way, but uh, whether they loved him or hated him, soldiers tended to perform better under Forrest's command. But whether he viewed Forrest's recruiting in occupied territory as a strategic threat or not, Sherman decided it was worth assigning significant numbers of Union cavalry to move uh, against Forrest's new command. 15,000 men total, organized in six separate detachments, set out to confront Forrest and his men from Columbia, Kentucky, Corinth, Mississippi, Huntsville, Alabama, and LaGrange, Georgia. Sherman was explicit when deploying them that the goal was not to chase Forrest out of the area. The goal was to engage and destroy him, force him to fight, and annihilate him once and for all. For Sherman, neutralizing Forrest had to be a priority. He had been effective in slowing, if not stopping, Union operations in the region, and that could not be allowed to stand. There was also a psychological element at play, as there so often was with Sherman. The legend of the Wizard of the Saddle was inspiring for Southern soldiers, and uh, Forrest was in the heads of a lot of Yankees, too. If Union cavalry could kill or capture the notorious rebel cavalier, it could have uh, significant morale effects on both sides. So the chase began in mid-December 1863. Forrest started moving south to escape from Tennessee back into Mississippi, needing to cross two rivers to do so, uh, the Hatchie and the Wolf. And the Union cavalry tracking him uh, started their attempt to destroy all the bridges Forrest and his new recruits could use to escape. They did a fairly thorough job on the bridges, but Forrest wouldn't be trapped that easily. He had thought ahead. Upon arriving at the Hatchie on December 23rd, Forrest sent out several small detachments to keep the roads clear and to skirmish with Union cavalry. And then, under cover of darkness, he began a nighttime crossing. Uh, the bridge was no longer functional, but Forrest's men uh, began making their way across the river using a ferry that he had carefully hidden earlier for just that purpose. It was a cold night, and the river was icy, not exactly the best conditions to cross in the dark. And while they were uh, on the water, a partial capsize sent a wagon and the four mules um, that were pulling it into the freezing water. A few of the rebel cavaliers jumped in to, um, to detach the mules uh, so that, you know, uh, they wouldn't be stuck to the wagon as it sank or, or washed downstream. And they attempted to save what could be salvaged of the wagon and its contents. Forrest dove into the icy water to assist in the effort, while at the same time, a fresh recruit uh, from Tennessee emphatically refused to participate, which was somewhat understandable under the circumstances. But the protest did not earn him any favor with his new commander, and after the job was completed, the rebel general, who was still wet from his venture into the partially frozen river, well, he let his disapproval be known by throwing the recalcitrant recruit into the water. It was a stern lesson that if he wanted the privilege of riding with the Confederacy's most infamous cavalry commander, he would be expected to follow orders. Yeah, even under 
uh, particularly unappealing circumstances. Notwithstanding the capsize and the subsequent icy swim, Forrest made it across the Hatchie. That's river number one. And he still needed to get across river number two, the Wolf River. Now, Union commanders were pretty certain that all possible bridges across the Wolf had already been rendered impassable by Union cavalry. And that was kind of right. But the problem was that the destruction of one bridge in particular had been uh, carried out in a, uh, we'll say, uh, half-hearted manner. Forrest got word of this, and he sent ahead an advanced team with, with the men and equipment that would be needed to, um, to make sufficient repairs to upgrade the condition of the bridge to a passable state. And as luck would have it, upon arriving at the bridge, they found that the, the Union Cavaliers, who had been responsible for putting the bridge out of commission, uh, had been helpful enough to leave the lumber that they had removed um, nearby. So with the wood already on hand, their job was, was all the easier. Now, it wasn't pretty, but it was, once again, passable. And once again, uh, the rebel cavalry was in a race, this time uh, a race to the newly reconstructed bridge. And they were fighting Union pursuers on either flank the whole time. As the bulk of the rebel horsemen crossed, uh, detachments on either side had to hold off advancing bluecoats. But by the skin of his teeth, Forrest made a narrow escape across the hastily repaired, barely serviceable bridge. And once across the wolf, he and his men, including the new recruits, were soon safely back behind rebel lines, utterly worn out, but outside the grasp of the Union cavalry pursuers. William Tecumseh Sherman, uh, having arranged what looked like a a can't-miss trap, was again frustrated by uh, the inability of his cavalry officers to, um, to neutralize Forrest. After a short breather, Forrest was placed in command of all of the rebel cavalry in the region, tasked with protecting Davis's home state of Mississippi and raiding north into Tennessee. He set up his headquarters in Mississippi, with uh, 2,500 men now under his direct command, and spread the rest out throughout the department. Before long, there was yet another Union cavalry detachment Uh, dispatched with an express purpose of destroying Forrest. This time, the anti-Forrest cadre came in the form of 10,000 horsemen riding out of Memphis under uh, General William Suey Smith. Smith was a 33-year-old graduate of both the University of Ohio and West Point. Prior to the war, he had been an ace engineer, specializing in designing steel bridges for railroads. And he had been uh, out of the Army for six years when the war broke out but accepted a commission in an Ohio regiment when Fort Sumter kicked off the fighting. A Yankee army was moving against Meridian, Mississippi, and Sherman had assigned Smith and his cavalry to support the advance, primarily by neutralizing Forrest. But Sherman was leaving from Vicksburg, and Smith was coming from uh, further north in Memphis. So the plan was to kind of meet along the way. But Smith was 10 days late getting started, and that would throw off the schedule. Once Smith got started, the cavalry set to work uh, destroying railroad tracks and and burning anything of uh, military utility, including farms and crops. Uh, According to a Union officer riding with Smith, the Yankee troopers left absolute destruction behind them. In response to the carnage, Forrest began scrambling to consolidate enough men to oppose Smith. But in the meantime... The Union campaign plan changed. 
Sherman had become concerned about Smith's delay, and he didn't like the idea of continuing the operation without reliable cavalry support. So he pulled back to Vicksburg. Shortly after, Smith, uh, learning Sherman had aborted the mission, changed course, and then soon after that, he discovered that Forrest had, had quickly closed the gap and was already engaging the Union rear guard. After piercing a, a shield of skirmishers, Forrest deployed a, a flanking force to try to circle around to the Union rear, while at the same time, the primary Confederate force would dismount and attack straight ahead. Hard fighting from Smith's men held off the attack, after which the Union cavalry rode late into the night to try to disengage Forrest. Remember, Smith was no longer uh, expected to support Sherman's advance, so he was trying to return to the safety of Memphis. And he seemed to think that once he put a little distance between the two sides, the Confederates would leave well enough alone, content in having dislodged the Union cavalry from Mississippi. Now, the rebels, though, uh, commenced a vigorous pursuit first thing the next morning, and again forced the Union cavalry into a fight. After an initial stalemate, a rebel flank attack turned Smith's position, leading to another Union flight, this one much less organized than the first. Again, the rebels followed in pursuit. There was some scattered contact until Smith found a defensive position along a wooded ridge, uh, ordered his men to throw up fieldworks, dismount, and form up to fight. The defense was initially successful, throwing back the first Confederate attack. That attack had been led by Colonel Jeffrey Forrest, the younger brother of the rebel commander. During the fighting, Jeffrey was shot in the neck and died soon after as a result. Uh, upon hearing of Jeffrey's falling, um, Nathan Bedford Forrest rushed to the scene and held his younger brother um, during his death before vowing revenge and again pressing the attack. The alternating fighting and rapid movements were fast-paced and frenzied, so Forrest couldn't spend more than a, a moment by his brother's side, but it was a highly emotional moment. Um, though short-lived, and when it concluded, Forrest resumed the assault on the Union cavalry with a vengeance. The rebels initially probed the Union center, then tested both flanks before a forceful advance uh, overwhelmed the Union center, opening a hole in the lines and prompting another order to retreat from William Suey Smith, who now found his position had become untenable. What followed was continuous movement and fighting as the Yankee cavalry tried to escape back into Tennessee. They'd turn and fight whenever they encountered a solid defensive position, improvising barricades uh, when materials were available. They'd hold the position as long as possible and then continue the withdrawal uh, when it was overrun. Now, one of the interesting things about Okolona was that Smith commanded the substantially larger force. He had about 7,000 men to force 2,500 or so. Had Smith fully committed to battle and found a position where he could, could bring his larger force to bear, he should have been able to at least fight the rebels to a draw and inflict enough damage that Forrest would have had to, had to let the matter rest. But Smith was caught off balance and sort of stuck in between gears. By continuously uh, attempting to evade an engagement, he let Forrest retain the initiative throughout and the repeated retreats kept the Union cavalry stretched out, allowing the rebels to keep nipping at their heels. As the contested withdrawal stretched mile after mile, the opposing cavaliers clashed in sometimes intensely violent combat, often hand-to-hand -hand at point-blank range. Forrest, the major general in overall command of the rebel fighting force, 
racked up three more kills personally and lost two more horses. As we have noted before, it was not customary during the Civil War for major generals to be in the thick of things, notching up uh, kills with pistol and saber. Forrest, though, thrived on it, and his presence during the fighting intensified the exertions of the men around him. At one point, the Union cavalry regrouped and executed a counterattack on the rebel left flank that momentarily changed the complexion of the entire engagement. The battle had been looking like a resounding victory for the rebels, but the result was suddenly in jeopardy. In response, Forrest organized and personally led a counter-counterattack on the Union center. The assault was a success, but Forrest and the small escort that he was fighting alongside got overextended and found themselves face-to-face with a much larger Union rear guard. In a scene that seemed to, to repeat over and over during Forrest's career, he and his men were fighting for their lives with sabers and pistols at point-blank range. A medic on Forrest's staff who witnessed the melee described it as a hand-to-hand fight to the death. So Forrest was in a tight spot. He and his escort fighting for their lives face-to-face with their Union opponents. Fortunately for him and his crew, Brigadier General Black Bob McCulloch noticed the precarious situation Forrest was in and began attempting to rally a relief force, shouting, My God, men, will you let them kill your general? I will go to his rescue if not a man follows me. After a little hesitation from some of the men, they were being asked to charge into a furious fight against a larger opponent that held a superior position. McCulloch's rally made their way to Forrest's side and successfully pushed back the Union rear guard force that had seemed on the verge of ending Forrest's career, if not life. And once again, the Union cavalry was rushing toward the Tennessee border uh, with rebel horsemen on their heels. Eventually, Forrest uh, called off the pursuit as his men began running out of ammo. It was a welcome reprieve for Suey's Yankee Cavaliers. It had been a long day. They made it back into Tennessee by February 26th, uh, occasionally harassed by local militia units along the way, but not facing nearly as much pressure. As reported by historian Ed Bars, a Union officer on the scene described the aftermath of the Battle of Oklahoma like this, quote, The retreat to Memphis was a wary, disheartening, and almost panic-stricken flight, in the greatest disorder and confusion, and through a most difficult country. The 1st Brigade reached its camping ground five days after the engagement, with the loss of all its heart and spirit, and nearly 1,500 fine cavalry horses. The expedition filled every man connected with it with burning shame, and it gave Forrest the most glorious achievement of his career. End quote. Sherman wasn't present, but he also felt the disappointment over William Suey Smith's failed attempt to take down General Forrest. Quote, I wanted to destroy General Forrest, who was constantly threatening Memphis and the river above, as well as our route to supplies in Middle Tennessee. In this, we utterly failed. I was disappointed and so reported officially to General Grant, end quote. For his part, Grant also commented on Forrest's impressive victory, quote, For the peculiar kind of warfare which Forrest had carried on, neither army could present a more effective army than he, end quote. Okolona is one of the featured performances on Nathan Bedford Forrest's highlight reel. Using daring strategy and aggressive tactics, he had emphatically defeated and dispersed a significantly larger Union cavalry contingent, which had set out with hopes of neutralizing the thorn in General Sherman's side. What followed not long after, though, 
was one of Forrest's lowlights. Not because he was defeated, far from it, but because the aftermath of the battle would tarnish Forrest's reputation for the rest of the war, the rest of his life, and still to this day. It became a Union rallying cry and fuel for Northern propaganda through the end of the war, and even throughout the Reconstruction era. Yes, that's right. If you haven't guessed yet, we're about to talk about Fort Pillow, which occurred in April 1864. Southerners referred to it as the the Battle of Fort Pillow, but in the North, it came to be known as the Fort Pillow Massacre. Now, before we dive into the Fort Pillow incident itself, we need to set the stage, provide some context, because it obviously didn't occur in a vacuum. By 1864, the gloves had long since come off on both sides. The South's overall position had become increasingly tenuous. The Union clearly had the upper hand, and Northern commanders were much less shy about pressing their advantages by 1864. Following up on Oklahoma, Forrest's next move in March of 1864 was to launch a series of raids, or one big raid, depending on how you want to look at it, uh, into western Tennessee. The area had a strategic value, and disrupting the Union operations in Memphis, which had been serving as a uh, sort of a hub for the Federal Army in the region, was one of Forrest's uh, favorite pastimes. And there was also a personal connection, too. Forrest had lived in western Tennessee, and he knew a lot of people there. And reports coming from the area were troubling. Western Tennessee had been in Union hands for a while now, but the population was was still fairly pro-Confederacy. Even so, there were also a lot of Unionists. At the beginning, it had been pretty rough for the Loyalists. But with the uh, authorities to their backs now, some pro-Union residents began taking advantage of the situation— whether to exact revenge or exploit the situation for personal gain. Gangs of what you might call pro-Union militias were running rampant, enjoying the spoils of war, and there were also packs of nihilistic Confederate deserters capitalizing on the chaos. Now, for the most part, Union occupiers uh, weren't concerned about stopping any of it, and regulars would occasionally get in on the action when the opportunity presented itself. Civilians in the area specifically cited Outrages committed by the commands of Colonel Fielding Hurst and others of the Federal Army, end quote. Confederate scouts who had uh, recently been there said, The whole of western Tennessee is overrun by bands and squads of robbers, horse thieves, and deserters whose depredations and unlawful appropriations of private property are rapidly and effectually depleting the country, end quote. Of course, most civilians in Tennessee weren't in guerrilla units or bandit gangs. They were just trying to to make it out alive. And they were the people who were targeted by the others. And more than a few of those ordinary people were looking for some relief from somewhere, anywhere. But who exactly could they complain to? Well, General Forrest, maybe. And when he heard about the uh, somewhat ugly situation, he took it to heart. Remember, he knew a lot of the people. He had lived among them, been a community leader even, and he took it upon himself to try to help, or at least exact whatever slice of retribution was possible. Step number one was to draft a letter addressed to Colonel Fielding Hurst, the uh, Union officer who his command had been uh, singled out by the locals in their complaints. Forrest demanded that civilians be reimbursed for money and property that had been appropriated by Hurst's command, uh, extortion is how Forrest described it. He recounted seven cases of deliberate murder purportedly committed by Hearst's men 
that had gone unpunished. And Forrest explained to Hearst uh, his plan to hold federal soldiers as hostages for the release, uh, or at least the fair trial, of political prisoners who were being held by Hearst, including a local pastor. And finally, Forrest declared that if Hearst refused to turn over the soldiers responsible for the murders of Southern civilians, Forrest would issue an order declaring both Hearst and all the men under him, quote, outlaws not entitled to be treated as prisoners of war upon falling into the hands of the forces of the Confederate States, end quote. The uh, implication of opposing soldiers not being treated as POWs wasn't that they'd you know, instead be released if captured. It was that they would be shot or hanged as criminals. Now, in our series on William Tecumseh Sherman, we touched on an exchange of correspondence between Sherman, uh, after he had taken Atlanta, and John Bell Hood, after he had lost Atlanta to Sherman. Hood denounced Sherman's treatment of civilians, invoked religious authority, and generally tried to shame the Union commander. But when Hood sent his angry letter, he was no longer in much of a position to, to do anything about it. It might as well have been a, a letter to the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The situation between Hearst and Forrest, though, was somewhat different. Because if there was one Confederate capable of carrying out a threat aimed at the officers running the Union occupation of western Tennessee, it was General Forrest. And he was, in fact, already on the way. The expedition started with the easy capture of Union City. Then on the 25th of March, the rebels moved against Paducah. The Union garrison there didn't contest Forrest's capture of the town, instead opting to hole up at Fort Anderson, just west of town, and to prepare uh, to defend that fort. Forrest wasn't all that concerned with the men uh, who were in the small Union fort. He was much more interested in the wealth of supplies that they had left behind when pulling out of the town. And it was an impressive haul, highlighted by the capture of the uh, Union supply train, which left Fielding Hearst little choice but to withdraw towards Memphis. Forrest next set his eyes on another Union garrison, turning, as he told it, toward a federal force of 500 or 600 at Fort Pillow, which I shall attend to in a day or two, as they have horses and supplies which we need, end quote. Fort Pillow was a fairly small minor fort along the Mississippi in Tennessee. The recent rebel successes, combined with a feint toward Memphis, had left Fort Pillow isolated and completely vulnerable, easy pickings for the horses and supplies the rebel cavaliers were after. The Union soldiers manning Fort Pillow were disproportionately represented by two groups uh, who were particularly unpopular with the rebel soldiers, especially the men riding under Forrest. The first were Union loyal soldiers from Tennessee, volunteers who had opted to fight to keep the Union rather than fighting to leave it. To Confederates, though, these men were traitors. Tennessee had seceded and joined the Confederacy, led by its elected leaders. So these men were fighting against their neighbors and families, fighting against their own. Now, no one likes a traitor. An enemy soldier is entitled to dignity. He's open about what he's doing and why he's trying to kill you. But a traitor is unforgivable. And remember, the reports uh, that had been coming in about renegade Tennesseans harassing the locals. So in the minds of Forrest's men, these were the guys who had been plundering the civilians in the area. Now, as you probably guessed... To the Tennessee Unionists inside Fort Pillow, it was the rebels who were the traitors. They were fighting against the United States of America, which many of the rebel officers in particular 
had previously sworn an oath to defend. It was they who had turned their back on their country in the eyes of the Unionists. So needless to say, there was a lot of animosity between the opposing units composed of pro-Confederate and pro-Union Tennesseans. A conflict between those two groups was a lot more likely to lead to unsanctioned brutality than a conflict between a, say, Wisconsin regiment and a Georgia regiment, for instance. And the second noteworthy group occupying Fort Pillow was what were called colored soldiers, some free blacks from the North and some emancipated slaves armed and trained by the Federals. And to many Confederates, freed blacks who took up arms against the South were, well, they were traitors too. Slave or not, if you were from Dixie and you took up arms against Dixie, you were a traitor, was how the thinking went. So if there was going to be a fight over Fort Pillow, it was set up to be a no-holds-barred affair. Fort Pillow was defensible, not overwhelmingly so, but the fort was capable of being defended. Uh, There were three lines of trenches around the exterior, organized in semicircles, and there were about 570 Union soldiers there. So not a huge force, but enough to put up a fight against forests, especially if they were fighting as defenders from behind earthworks. But unfortunately for the Tennessee Unionists and the black soldiers in the fort, the Union commanders let them down. Union leadership opted to concentrate their strength within the fort's inner defensive earthworks, and in doing so, they conceded elevated terrain outside the fort. When the rebel advance party arrived on April 12th, they quickly snatched up the high ground, and before much fighting had even occurred, the Confederates were in a position to shoot down on and bombard the fort from undercover. Making matters worse, one of the early sniper victims was Major Lionel Booth, who had been in command of the fort. When Forrest arrived, he organized his men so that the Yankee defenders were basically surrounded, with the river to their backs. At that point, the Yankees are taking sniper fire and artillery with little to no ability to fight back, but they remained in a strong position in terms of repelling a ground assault when it came. But rather than an order in advance against the Yankee position, Forrest directed his men to move against the buildings that were outside the fort. And once those were occupied, the rebels could bring consistent rifle fire against the defenders. Uh, So the situation for the Union soldiers was getting dire. Forrest figured the federal leadership would recognize their predicament, and so he issued a demand for unconditional surrender. But within that demand, he noted that the conduct of the officers and men garrisoning Fort Pillow has been such as to entitle them to the treatment as prisoners of war, end quote. Now, that ordinarily wouldn't be all that big of a deal, Uh, if not for Forrest's earlier threat, and if not for the phrase that followed. Should my demand be refused, I cannot be responsible for the fate of your command, end quote. Now that sounds, frankly, that sounds Sherman-esque. Look, I'm a reasonable guy, surrender now, and I'll make sure you're treated well. But these men, well, sometimes they get a little wild and I can't control them. It's a really nice garrison you have here. It'd be a shame if something were to happen to it. After Major Booth's death, Major William Bradford was now in charge of Fort Pillow. And in response to Forrest's message, Bradford requested time to think over the offer. And Forrest agreed to a 20-minute ceasefire. And this is where things start going off the rails. Bradford knew, and Forrest initially didn't know, that there were two Union freshwater Navy boats, a gunboat and a transport, rapidly approaching the fort. 
When Forrest learned that fact, he not unreasonably interpreted Bradford's request for 20 minutes as a ruse to buy time for the Navy to come to the aid of Fort Pillow's defenders. Forrest, deciding that Bradford's apparent duplicity was a breach of the ceasefire, dispatched men to contest the landing. And sure enough, as the boats arrived, Bradford sent his response to the surrender demand. I will not surrender. During the brief truce, rather than trading coffee and tobacco or anything like that, the opposing camps had been trash-talking, taunting one another. Come and get us, Johnny. Or, no quarter for scoundrels, that sort of thing. And keep in mind, this was more personal than most other engagements due to the mutual hatred that the opposing Tennesseans felt for one another. It was a lot different from what was going on at the uh, siege of Chattanooga. With the ceasefire now obviously no longer in effect, and Bradford having declared his intention to fight, Forrest finally ordered an assault on the fort. Importantly, though, he was not leading from the front like he normally did, because he had been injured in an earlier fall from a horse and was not at present in physical condition to slug it out in the trenches. Even without Forrest physically leading, the rebel forest, which was three times larger than the garrison, quickly overran the Yankee defenses. Once the first ring of earthworks had been breached, uh, they were fish in a barrel for the attackers to shoot at their leisure. The Union gunboat, the New Era, known for its hats, made a hurried effort to come to the fort's aid, but the attempt had to be aborted. Bradford, who you'll remember had taken command upon the death of Major Lionel Booth, uh, had few good options at this point. He could try to organize an ordered surrender, but the chaos would make that difficult. So he'd uh, probably already missed his chance for that approach. He could order the soldiers to fight to the last man, but that would be a waste of life, and, and Fort Pillow was in no way worth condemning every bluecoat in the fort to his death. The approach that he ultimately opted for was to shout to the defenders with an earshot, Boys, save your own lives! Now, the downside of that approach was that it more or less eliminated the potential for any uh, additional organized action on the Union side, whether that would be a, a last stand, an ordered withdrawal, or a surrender. Some Union soldiers tried to escape to the river in the safety of the gunboats. Uh, some put down their weapons and tried to surrender, uh, some successfully. And some didn't really know what else to do, so they just kept on shooting. The worst killing seems to have occurred on the riverbank, where Union soldiers tried to reach the gunboats uh, were sitting ducks, or uh, drowned trying to swim to safety. This is how Forrest described the scene, though he didn't uh, arrive to the fort until a little later. Quote, the victory was complete, and the loss of the enemy will never be known from the fact that large numbers ran into the river and were shot and drowned. The river was dyed with the blood of the slaughtered for 200 yards. End quote. And Forrest added in his report that he, quote, hoped these facts will demonstrate to the northern people that Negro soldiers cannot cope with Southerners, end quote. And, you know, that's a pretty good piece of evidence if you're trying to make the case that Forrest was well aware of the uh, figurative black flag many of his men were fighting under. A Union soldier described the proceedings after the fall of Fort Pillow simply as, quote, the most horrible slaughter that could possibly be conceived, end quote. HistoryNet quotes a Confederate sergeant as recounting in a personal letter, quote, The slaughter was awful. Words cannot describe the scene. The poor, deluded Negroes would run up to our men, 
fall upon their knees and with uplifted hands scream for mercy, but they were ordered to their feet and then shot down. The white men fared but little better. End quote. By the time the firing stopped, around 230 Union soldiers were dead, including men shot during the battle, and about the same number were held as POWs, uh, around a third of whom were black soldiers. Now, there really isn't any controversy as to whether Union soldiers were killed at Fort Pillow after or while surrendering. Uh, That's pretty clearly occurred. And it's also pretty well established that a few Confederate officers unsuccessfully tried to stop the killing, but that it didn't actually cease until Forrest showed up and ordered a halt to firing. The controversy, well, at least for our purposes, is over whether Forrest did or did not order any of it, and whether he knew what was going on before arriving on the scene. The Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War uh, conducted an investigation not long after, and concluded that, without question, Forrest was to blame. The Fort Pillow Massacre was, quote, indiscriminate slaughter, a policy deliberately decided upon and unhesitatingly announced. No cruelty which the most fiendish malignity could devise was omitted by these murderers, end quote. The committee's conclusion was that Forrest didn't just know about and consent to the shootings. He had actually ordered them. According to Britannica, though, the congressional investigation, quote, had clear propagandistic purposes. There was some testimony suggesting that, at least by the time of his arrival, Forrest was trying to stop the bloodshed. One uh, black soldier who testified before the uh, Joint Committee Um, testified that he heard Forrest give an order to stop shooting. And Confederate Samuel Caldwell later wrote, quote, If General Forrest had not run between our men and the Yanks with his pistol and saber drawn, not a man would have been spared. A Union doctor who testified at the congressional hearing noted that some of the rebels had located some booze at the fort, and things had got out of control at that point. He noted that rebel soldiers doing the indiscriminate killing were making accusations of foul treatment of civilians, specifically aimed at Tennessee deserters, who had left the Confederates to fight for the Union. When General Chalmers arrived, uh, according to the doctor, he calmed things down and placed a guard around the POWs. So what's the bottom line? Probably that a successful rebel attack and a lack of strong leadership on the Union side due to the commander's death Uh, led to chaos after the fort fell, so that when the initial wave of rebels arrived, without any effective supervision, they descended into a wave of vengeful killing. It was fairly short, but it was intense, leading to probably scores of unnecessary deaths of soldiers who had either already surrendered or would have done so given the opportunity. Tennessee Unionists, and especially black Union soldiers, got the worst of it, until the arrival of Confederate officers capable of reining in the furious and possibly drunk rebel cavaliers. As for Forrest, it seems pretty doubtful that he ordered his men to give the black flag treatment to Fort Pillow. It's telling that uh, the battle, um, when it occurred, was one of the few in which Forrest wasn't leading from the front. But with that said, he doesn't seem to have been uh, overly broken up about it. His report kind of sounds like it was uh, the loss of discipline that bothered him more than the loss of life. Forrest maintained for the remainder of his life that he never ordered executions of POWs. In his words, quote, I slaughter no man except in open warfare. My prisoners, both white and black, are turned over to my government to be dealt with as it may direct. 
but I regard captured Negroes as I regard other captured property and not as captured soldiers. Union officials made the most of Fort Pillow as a propaganda tool. It was cited as evidence of Southern savagery, warranting harsh treatment when it was the Bluecoats who had the upper hand. And as to Forrest specifically, Fort Pillow became Exhibit A in Union efforts to make Forrest the face of rebel viciousness. He became even more of an infamous, reviled figure in the North, continuing until well after the war. And when Forrest's controversial post-war activities became a story, Fort Pillow was pointed to as proof of Forrest's propensity for cruelty and notoriously violent character. And I think that's where we'll leave off for part three. I had kind of hoped to get through Bryce's Crossroads, but I think we're at a pretty good episode length here. So we'll wrap up the Forest series next time with part four, starting with the aforementioned Bryce's Crossroads through the end of the war and then looking at Forrest's post-war career and politics. I mentioned in a previous show my impression that listeners tended to be more interested in, in the war itself and less so in the post-war years. But as it turns out, several listeners emailed to let me know that there was plenty of interest out there for post-bellum politics, and I was glad to hear that because I enjoy learning about that period as well. So to sign off, I think I'll leave you with something of a, a teaser, an extended quote from an interview with Forrest after the war. This is from an Ohio newspaper in 1868. Uh, the interviewer had asked him, if uh, he would support allowing freed slaves to vote. Forrest was involved in democratic politics, so when he refers to our party, that's what he means. But he could not himself vote yet as a former Confederate leader. Uh, this is Forrest's response, quote, I am opposed to it under any and all circumstances. In our convention, urged our party not to commit themselves at all on the subject. Pretty unequivocal, right? But then Forrest equivocated. If the Negroes vote to enfranchise us, I don't think I would favor their disenfranchisement. We will stand by those who help us. And here I want you to understand distinctly, I am not an enemy to the Negro. We want him here among us. He is the only laboring class we have. And more than that, I would sooner trust him than the white scalawag or carpetbagger. When I entered the army, I took 47 Negroes into the army with me, and 45 of them were surrendered with me. I told these boys that this war was about slavery, and if we lose, you will be made free. If we whip the fight and you stay with me, you will also be made free. Either way, you will be freed. Those boys stayed with me, drove my teams, and better Confederates did not live. End quote. We'll revisit that quote next time, among others, and get a better feel for the context of it and some of the somewhat surprising positions that Forrest staked out after the war. Until then, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. 
Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.